Hi, I'm Sam Simon, and I'm the grandpa, and I always think deep. Hi, I'm Emily Simon. I'm the granddaughter, and I'm always wondering, in every conversation we have, why does grandpa always think deep? So Emily, do you remember where we left off last time? I remember, yes, I do. Yes, I do remember. We were talking about forming relationships with people who are different from you, who are part of different groups from you. And basically, like, when you go home, like, when you go home, do you have to have friendships in your personal life with people who are different from you in order for society to be truly integrated? Right. So we know, or I was saying, that we sort of pride ourselves. We sort of think, yay, we're all good because... When I go to work, we have African-American, Hispanics, men, women, today, LGBTQ environments. Now, not everybody's happy with that, or certainly not about affirmatively wanting to make that happen. But even in today, even the most what I would call progressive or more open people who are working hard to make society diverse, even they, when they go home, tend to go home to the same race, same faith, same everything. There's data out there, I wish I knew the exact number, that would suggest that most families or people have no more than 15 other people or couples who are intimate or close families. And they are still today. And that's still today, almost for most of the people, very similar. We don't go outside our faith or our race when we have that. And I guess it's a question and it's been argued until that time, we're going to be highly separated and segregated. Now, it raises a lot of challenges, oh, right? Oh, definitely. I think something I've actually thought about this before, and I've thought about like, I feel like there's like this tension between almost my obligations to the Jewish community to be involved in that Jewish community and be a part of that community, and also my obligation to the country as a whole to be integrated and be friends with all different types of people. So I feel like it's sort of this tension that you almost face like in your daily life when you decide what you're going to do and how am I, like, where am I going to devote my time to being and who am I going to devote my time towards forming relationships. Obviously, that's not the only thing that I think about when forming relationships, but it's kind of there in the back of my mind, I think. So I feel like that it raises some interesting questions. Well, it might even be a generational difference. It could be. Like, uh, so what was your bringing up? Like, who well, were you? When we grew up, and particularly my mother, now you have to remember my mother was from the South. She was mm-hmm. raised in New Orleans. I didn't understand that about her, by the way, until I was about in my mid-20s. I didn't quite understand why she was the way she was, because she didn't have a Southern accent. She didn't look Southern. I just experienced her as my mother. Yeah. My wow. father was from St. Louis. I didn't realize that was Missouri. And I don't think this was so much from him, you know, later. But we needed to be among family and our own kind. That's uh, sort of like the message you got growing up. Yeah. And it wasn't always articulated that way. Sometimes it was. And it was particularly about Jewish. You know, her view of racially was about the Hispanics. And I think she would have said she's not prejudiced, but we don't need to have them in the neighborhood and around us. They didn't need to be. We even had a three-door across the the audience. I'm putting my hand out, pointing across (laughs) the street from our house, three doors, four doors down, the De La Garza. They were, I think, the only Hispanic family on her block and she often said don't play with them so mean i don't know if it's mean it was her way of wanting to protect her family and to 
assure her family, her children grew up right or correctly. Mm -hmm. And that was with the Jewish community and the people. She had people she admired. She wanted us to be like them. Interesting. So that isn't that different in many, uh, certainly middle class. And I don't know, I think almost in my era, it was the, the way to be. Now, sounds like you don't have that point of view necessarily or see it as heavily in your generation. So now we're getting to this cross-generation experience. Well, I think I can say in my own upbringing, I definitely was always involved with the temple. I went to preschool there, religious school there, went to summer camp there. Oh, definitely like a lot of the things that I did outside of public school was with the congregation, but it wasn't because my parents didn't want me to be around different types of people because they wanted to be involved in that community, which I, again, I think brings us to this balance thing. So most of my friends I had growing up, my parents made most of their family friends through like parents of other kids who I went to preschool with. And of course, those kids are pretty much all Jewish. And I, mean, I don't think it was, it wasn't because they didn't want us to be around other types of people. It was just because they wanted to be involved in that community. So I think you would guess sort of almost the same outcome, not the same outcome exactly, but a similar outcome, but not with the same intention. Let me offer part of the dilemma. This is not a new dilemma. Yeah. Nor is it a new argument, though you and I are not arguing. There is a view that some people have that America is the mixing bowl and everybody should become American. That is, we should come together as a singular culture. And then there is a multicultural movement. And that's part of some of the cultural divides that we even see today. The idea that you can have New Italy or Jewish neighborhoods where they become fully richly engaged in their own ethnic background or cultural traditions, separate but part of a checkerboard of not just black and red, but black, red, purple, orange. And we live in this country, a multicultural, almost breakfast bowl of all those different colors in the same country. And then there are those who said, no, 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 no. We are a singular country. Even today, you've probably heard me, and it is in the political context, but we hear some politicians that say, we are a white Christian nation. <laughs> and America should be this. Now we bring it back down to our discussion of how are we raised? Or even if we want to be either one, there is this exclusivity. You know, we were talking about how do we talk to other people? This is actually, interestingly, I think part of the same conversation, isn't it? If we spend all our time around everybody who's like us, it's harder to understand the other's point of view and engage them, even if politically or in any way, we right. don't understand them. Yeah. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them. Yeah. I grew up in an era of pretty much the predominant view, particularly because it was post-war. I was born in 1945. We were just coming out of World War II. A lot of my culture is, you know, from movies. And in the movies, we had newsreels. And that's where a lot of people got radio and newsreels. Newsreels were graphic. And I can remember seeing pictures from World War II and the Holocaust and terrible, terrible things in the world. And they were on the news, but they were, there was little television 
So we did see graphic that it was on a bigger screen. We heard about it on the radio. We had neighbors. But we still went back home. And it was, America has won. We have fought the war and won. We are a singular nation. And if you look back over all these generations, the tension between bringing in, you know, the Statue of Liberty and the welcoming of different cultures and, you know, wide open arms to everybody to come. Did they come to become Americans and be just like us? Or did they become to America to enjoy the freedom, a secular or a political system that allows them to be who they are and have been and celebrate their own culture? was a big debate. And I wonder if there, not only do I wonder, but I still see remnants of that, though I see big movements into what I would believe. And I think multicultural, that you will celebrate the differences of others and enjoy them. But we still don't seem to be that close now. Interesting. Okay. You raised a lot of points, huh? a lot of points. And I do have some thoughts that I would like to share. Please. So, okay. So we talk about like, the melting pot versus like more of a patchwork quilt almost of cultures. And I feel like the reality is that it's more of a patchwork quilt. And I think that patchwork quilt can make it difficult to reach out to other squares of the quilt, right? Because I feel like when I'm talking to someone from another state, mm. like, you know, there's inherently certain things that I can't talk about. Like if I'm talking to someone who isn't Jewish, no matter what culture they come from, there's just certain things that like you just you can't talk about with them because they wouldn't get it. Or, but you're kind of having me almost rethink it. Like, what if I did talk about it to teach them about it? I taught to show them what our traditions and cultures are to teach them that it's not that different or weird or crazy or whatever they may think it is. So there's that. It gets really complicated because... It, it really does. Because it's hard to stay away from the... Well, maybe I'll stay away from the role of government in all of this. Though it comes up in, should any faith or tradition be able to do whatever they want? And in America, this did come up many times. This is my lawyerism. The one I'm thinking about is there was, I think, a Native American religious ritual system where they used poisonous snakes and you could be killed. And the government said, you can't do that. That That is too risky. I don't care what your religion is, but you can't have ritual that might kill people. It's this a said, tricky line to walk. It is a tricky line to walk, but it may be that's so extreme in that in the, the everyday, I think my culture has had, and the people who grew up with have had the challenge of being more insular. I definitely, I think I guess you could call it insulation. Or, ins or insularity. Insular, or that's probably the right word. Yeah. Definitely is a thing. I think it's kind of almost ironic how the internet, which is something that was supposed to connect all of us, ends up only isolating us and putting us in echo chambers and bubbles of people who think like us. And when you put someone in a bubble of people who only think like them, you can say, oh, the other group thinks this, even though no one in the other group actually thinks that. You can say that and people will believe it because they don't know anyone who's any different from them. Or they don't have any enough meaningful interaction. Sure, you might meet people who are different from you at work, but you don't talk about like your personal beliefs at work. You talk about work at work. And so I think that having personal relationships with people who are different from you is good for realizing what people truly, really think. So let me go even deeper. Okay. Part of the reasons, I believe, that we are insular, and particularly in my family, I think it might even be true in your family a bit, is fear, or let's, yes, there is fear, 
and on the other hand is a sense of obligation. What fear do I owe? Fear of losing the coherence and the history of, so what are we as individuals? What am I, Sam Simon? You want to talk about my journey into Judaism, which we will get in deeper probably in another episode, but at some point you have to decide on a very individual, one, the needs is on a very individual level, who am I in this world and what obligation do I have to anybody? There are some people who say nothing. No obligations to anyone, only obligations to myself. Or do I have an obligation to my history and to my family history and to those from whom I have come? And if so, what are the limits of that in modernity? And while it is true, somebody has the ability to make any choice on anything, yes. there are consequences to every choice we make. Of course. And what do we decide we cannot choose to do? Clearly, Judaism and faith has been very important to me. And it's important to your parents because they made choices about where do I have you go to nursery school. They have made the choice to be very involved in that community themselves. It has had its own impact on you. Yeah. And so when we choose to take, it's almost like expanding to other communities, particularly early on and in intimate friendships or close friendships or and learning about other things, there's the risk of, well, why don't I do that? Of change and abandonment of this. You know, sometimes faith is not rational. Faith is, a, or obligation isn't a rational thought. It is an emotional thought. Very and much so. Religion is very, very, very emotional. So how do we decide to make decisions? What are our limits on what we do? How are we? Another way to put it, using some faith language, is what sense of commandedness do we have? In Judaism, there are things called mitzvot. Those are yes. obligations. And there's a things list. Things God commanded you to, to do. do. And there's even within that a list of the, and these are more important than others. Yeah. Yeah, like, right, honoring your mother and father, Ram, Fong, Graf, <laughs> no, they don't go to the grandparents, but honoring your mother and father, comforting the mourner, celebrating with the bride and groom, no idol worship, you know, things like that. How do we or do we incorporate those into our lives? And what I mean, that's are, choice. those are choices. Right. Are there limits? How do we decide which choices? Like you said, it's very emotional. It's a very emotional thing. You pick based on, well, you have like this set of traditions in Judaism, at least. There's a set of traditions. There's the Torah, which has all the ones that you should follow. And you don't have to follow all of them. You can pick ones up that you think you like that you didn't. So you have the ones that, personally, the way it is for me, you, there's a Torah that has all the things you're supposed to do. Okay. Then I have things that I actually did in my childhood. You pick which of those did I like, which of those meant something to me. Most religions have rituals, and those rituals exist for a reason. And usually I find those reasons to be pretty good, at least. We gather together for a reason. It's good to gather together. You have holidays that break things up, but things aren't always the same all the time. You do something special every now and again. And you basically you pick what is important to you. What makes you feel good? What do you like? And you pick it, and maybe you'll find it's new ones along the way that you didn't do as a child, but that you think are pretty cool, and you want to do that. So let me go back. Let's take this. <laughs> no, that's good. But it actually, in my experience, takes us back to the first part of the conversation. And maybe we can sort of set us up for future conversations. So we're back to the home. And how do we view and treat others? So I was in this big, deep conversation with some leaders from all different we talked about this last episode. Well, no, this was a different one. Oh, a different one. Okay. It was okay, different. Okay. There, and there were there was one African-American person. Yeah. And then there was this other friend who was not African-American. He was a lawyer. 
And in this discussion, he said, we need to learn how to become more tolerant. And this African-American almost banged on the table wow. and stopped the conversation. He said, just a minute here. You're talking about you tolerating me. And tolerance is a word of power. You decide that you're okay with putting up with me, basically. Yeah. And if we think about it, if everybody has a, an equal right of being and presence and engagement. That's more than just tolerating. It's more than just tolerating. That tolerance is like, you are different, but I'm going to be okay with that. because times. No, I'm not going to say anything. Well, and it could be also at the core of power struggles. I'm going to let you be because you're not a threat yet. Threat to what? To my power, my position, my opportunity, or to other things. I never things. understood when people talked about like viewing African Americans as threat or like African Americans as a threat or being scared. Like I remember, I was watching like a documentary with Michelle Obama. She was talking with another white woman her age. She was like, "Oh, my parents moved out of. She lived in, like in an, I think in an inner city neighborhood in Chicago." Or somewhere else. And she was like, oh, my parents moved out because they were they were scared of black people. I was like, scared of Michelle Obama at the kindergartner? How is that scary? I don't well, I never understood that. That just seems so silly to me. Except that the truth of it might be, and it's true still today, there is de facto segregation in many communities, and that a lot of the one where there's high crime rates are so I'm gonna use two here because this may be stereotypical, but the high crime rates there would be among the minority community. So then when lower economic minority group gets into, occupies the neighborhood, there'll be more crime. So she wanted to get out. There is a history of schools getting worse. So they wanted to move out. That is how I understood that kind of comment. So that could be the basis. There's another, back to, and then the other part of our conversation. The fear could be, it's a threat to the traditions that I have is the possibility that my children will see other values and other people who are different than my tradition and they'll be lured away. And it could be one of either reasons. I don't know. I would hear that conversation you just cited mm -hmm. as the neighborhood was becoming more crime ridden and that the schools got worse. It was but, only perception, right? It's yeah. perception, but that would be the fear. And I wanted to go where higher economic status, which meant better schools and less crime. Look, it's part of endemic problems where, you know, we're sitting here in the Washington, D.C. metro area, and I heard on the news that three people were shot yesterday in Washington, D.C., or four in a neighborhood where they said there was an open-air drug market. And it's like, how can you have an open-air friggin' drug department in a city where drugs are illegal and they could go there and stop it? But they don't. I mean, so that's like a different kind of topic, but so people move out to the suburb. Okay, I, I understand the possibility. I want to yeah. go back to what you talked about before about people being scared about the threat. Yes. Right? This threat of interacting with people whose values and customs and cultures are different from yours and the fear that you'll lose it. I feel like almost like may, I kind of want to hear that. I almost want to jump in and say, oh, well, you know, you know, just because other people are doing some different things doesn't mean you can't do your thing and I can't do my thing. But also earlier, we kind of just agreed that. That's not necessarily where it's within your family, your family, you do your tradition and you do your thing and I do my thing and we do it together and we don't bother each other. And then we have our own traditions within our families, but then you have friends with people who have different traditions. So you know that a lot of Jewish families, and I was one of them, you know, would like their kids to marry within their faiths and mm -hmm. in the same group. Yeah. 
And I think we've talked about him, but one of my very closest friends, and you knew him, is Rabbi, the late blessed memory, Rabbi Berkowitz. Mm -hmm. Very early on, many, many years ago, we were having dinner, Grandma and I, at his home. Yes. His kids were teenagers. Yeah. And he said he didn't want them to date people of the a different faith. He wanted to socialize, well, socialize, but date particularly only Jewish young people. He said he explained to them that the reason wasn't that Christians or other faiths are bad, just the opposite reason, that they're just fine and it's as easy to fall in love with a Christian or a non-Jewish person as it is to fall in love with a Jewish person. And since he wanted his children to marry within Judaism, he didn't want them to be at risk of falling in love with an equally valued human being, yes. but of a different tradition. Mm -hmm. So that goes to this idea of why to be afraid. The allure of the other's traditions and possibility can be high and, and inherently you can say there's integrity to most major faiths and traditions, including non-faith traditions out there. And so the fear is, I want my family to be a cohesive whole, to back to what I was saying earlier, to stay with the traditions. What do we owe to those who came before us? And what do we owe to the future? Or is it just whatever, you know, you fell in love and that's what happened and Go ahead. You know, so that is a pretty deep question to me. I don't, I don't, I know how I, I think believe. it's up to every individual person to answer for themselves. So how do they make that decision? Is it random or is my granddaughter a fierce libertarian? Anybody should be able to do what they want to do with what they think is right for them. The rest of it doesn't matter. There's no obligation to the past. Well, well like, you don't have to answer that. That's a, <laughs> you, know, you don't have to go on the record yet. <laughs> It took me a long time to get there. Well, well, you're looking at me like I'm supposed to give an answer. I'm very confused. You're giving me some mixed signals here. Oh, well, people don't see us. My words are what I'm saying. Okay. And the no, audience, we, we don't rehearse these. These are real time. We're really just talking. We're just we're just talking about things. Just talking. That are really important, right? Yep. They're really important. Really, I loved our conversation, and thank you for that. I know it can be difficult, and I would yeah. love to keep these going. And again, really hope that on what I consider some of the hardest questions within families and young people and, and old people, look at, I'm beginning, you're one generation, then your dad and us, that's like three generation yeah. bandwidth. These are the, some of the more important ongoing conversations of the day. And the people Absolutely. Have, that's why we'd love for other people to begin to pop in and are you faced with these? How are you resolving them? How do these issues come up in your own life? And how do you make those decisions? Right. So thank you again, Emily. Of course. And we'll pick this up in two weeks. Pick it up very soon. All right. See you all soon. Thank you for listening.